0: Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8, if you missed uh, all the Daniel 7s, you can read Daniel 7 by yourself, um, and and all the sermons are on our website too, to to, uh, catch you up, because things are getting crazy in Daniel's visions now. So Daniel 8 says that a ruthless king, it's part of Daniel's vision, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. Verse 25 says, yet he will be broken, not by human hands. This is God's word. So this is uh, the second of four visions um, in Daniel. Daniel's first vision that we looked at. And Daniel 7 concerned four uh, big bad beasts terrorizing God's people until the Ancient of Days arrived, took his seat. The Son of Man came on the clouds and the beast was judged, cast into the fire. The saints were rescued, resurrected, and inherited the kingdom. Daniel 7 was like a good vision for Daniel. And, and Daniel 2 and, and Daniel 7 are ultimately concerned with God delivering his people from this present evil age into the age to come, right? It's, Daniel 7 ends just as good as a vision can end. Um, The second vision, though, Daniel 8, which we're going to look at today, is different than Daniel 7. The vision in Daniel 8 doesn't deal with the fourth um, kingdom that Daniel saw in the previous vision, but with the second kingdom, the Medo-Persians, and the third kingdom, um, Greece, with particular emphasis. Okay, So we're not talking about the fourth at all. He doesn't show up. Here, um, but of the third kingdom, particular emphasis on a little horn. Remember the little horn from Daniel four or Daniel seven? Okay, there's this is a different little horn from the third kingdom, um, and this little horn we'll find out is the Syrian-born mad tyrant of the Seleucid Empire named Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, or they uh, people who didn't like him called him Antiochus Epiphanes, which meant Antiochus uh, the Madman. Which, which we'll see, um, who raged against God, raged against God's people, God's city, and God's temple, but ultimately was broken, um, by God's hand. So, while the events of Daniel 8 are, um, in our past, I think, they gird us up to, to face the future, right? To, you see how God dealt with Antiochus in Daniel 8, um, we can trust him with the future so that we would have full confidence okay full trust in god that uh, wickedness will come to an end by god's hand and we can remain faithful to god in the face of wickedness and and not lose heart right that's really my goal that's my only goal for you guys okay it's my only goal for myself is that i would not lose heart and trust god um, until the end. Okay, so Daniel eight works just like Daniel seven. Daniel has a wild vision, and the Lord sends an angel to interpret it um, for him. So uh, I have a, a picture next. For time purposes, I have to skip the start of Daniel eight, uh, which is the vision of the goat and the ram. If you guys haven't read Daniel eight, go go read it. Um, but essentially, in Daniel's vision, he sees the Medo Persian Empire. Alright, this um, ram, he sees it rise, and then he sees it defeated by Alexander the Great, right? He De- sees it defeated by um, Greece, Alexander dies, at 30, he's like 33 years old, he conquers the world, and then he he dies at 33 from, uh, I think, diarrhea. Um, worms is Antiochus, we'll get to, yeah. Um, he dies, his empire is split into four, okay? and, and the main one that we're going to talk about today is the Seleucid Empire. And out of the Seleucid Empire, uh, out, of, out of Greece, out of Alexander's um, kingdom, Antiochus, rises. So that's what we'll look at first, his rise. And and Daniel is seeing all of this 350 years before it happens, right? Daniel's in in Babylon, and he's seeing all of human history here um, play out. God's showing him the future. And as this future starts to unfold, a lot of it's going to be familiar to what Daniel has seen already, because the exploits and the attitudes of this third uh, beast, little horn, they match A lot of what he previously saw with the fourth beast um, little horn in the previous vision, okay? And so the first thing that matches, the rise of the third little horn matches the rise of the fourth little horn. So Daniel 8 verse 9 says that from one of them, one of the four horns that rose up from Alexander's empire, from one of them, the Seleucid empire, a little horn Emerged And it grew extensively towards the south and the east and toward the beautiful land, towards um, Israel. So the angel comes to Daniel and interprets what this is about. Verse 23. The angel says that near the end of their kingdoms, of those four kings, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne through his cunning and by his influence. And just quick, this isn't part of my notes, but I just... If you're, you know, why do, we, why do we believe, why do we trust that our Bibles are, you know, true and, and worth relying on? Well, because they tell the future. Well, like, that's, like, prophecy is a huge reason you should trust your Bible. Daniel saw all this, and and then it um, happened. Anyway, verse 25, through his cunning and by his influence, this king from these four little horns um, will rise. So Antiochus uh, starts small. He, If you hate history, you picked a bad Sunday. This is... I Antiochus starts small. He's held hostage uh, in Rome. Rome's starting to rise at this time. He's, he's uh, in prison there for 14 years while his brother, uh, Seleucus, is king of the Seleucid Empire. When he comes to the throne, Rome says, hey, we'll swap you. We'll give you your little brother Antiochus back. but We get to take your son, And it wasn't really a negotiation. They said, this is going to happen. So Antiochus gets out of prison, goes back to his brother. And then Antiochus uh, does some shady things, gets his brother assassinated. And now who's the king? Antiochus, right? Like this is how he came um, to power, right? By bribery and flattery and skill and intrigue, okay? Antiochus is now the king. So just like that fourth beast subdued king, so is this third beast doing the same. Next, Antiochus shares the arrogance of the fourth beast. Verse 11, uh, the little horn Antiochus acted arrogantly, even against the prince of the heavenly army. Verse 25, and in his own mind, the angel said he will exalt himself. Um, first, I'm going to read a lot from Maccabees this morning. If you have a Catholic Bible, Maccabees. It's just the history of, of Antiochus and the Maccabean Revolt. You know, It's just a history book. It says that he advanced to the ends of the earth and he plundered many nations. He was exalted and his heart um, was lifted up. And I, I, a picture here, even his name, Epiphanes, uh, it just screams arrogance. His name means God manifest, and, and it's printed on their coins. So the coins that Antiochus had made, the, the uh, writing there on the left there says, Theos uh, Epiphanes, God manifest. So to even use the coins in the empire, you're saying, yes, Antiochus um, is, is above God. And, and so this arrogant and, and wicked Gentile king um, is a callback to Isaiah 14. And and Isaiah describes the king of Babylon in these sorts of terms. So Isaiah 14, he says to this king of Babylon, you've said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set my throne above the stars of God, like as arrogant as you can be. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly. I will ascend above the highest clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Okay, like you can be cocky. Right. Like, like there's, you know, there's like LeBron James is a, a cocky fellow. Right. He's not saying I'm God. Right. That's Tiger Woods. Right. <laughs> right, But this, this like, is like the most arrogant human being to, to walk, to walk the planet. And, and his arrogance is empowered, um, I think, by Satan, like the king in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 20. I think it's empowered by the like, you, you, you know, humans are cocky by themselves. This is extra, okay? And and Daniel tells us this, Daniel 8, 24, his power will be great, but it will not be his own, right? It comes from somewhere else. These wicked kings are driven by um, uh, bad, bad, bad things, okay? Uh, Next, Antiochus, uh, like the fourth beast, rages against God. And he rages against God's, even God's angels, and he rages against um, God's people. So verse 10 um, it says the Antiochus grew as high as the heavenly army. He made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and he trampled them. It acted arrogantly, even against the prince of the heavenly army. It, it revoked his regular sacrifice. It overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Uh, are, are there any Friday morning Bible study ladies in here? You guys are reading Ezra, right? Okay, so they, this is, Daniel's, again, seeing into the future that they've rebuilt the temple, right? They're, they're starting to have offerings and sacrifices again. But he sees that this guy over, revokes the sacrifice, overthrows the place of God's sanctuary. Verse 12, even in the rebellion, the army's given up together with the sacrifice. And it says that the little horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. He will cause outrageous destruction. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes, which is who? The Lord, right? Against, he will take his stand against him because this is what arrogant people do. Right, they they set themselves against the Lord. So he's taking on um, all, uh, God, his angels, and um, God's people. Okay, so for like, and I, this you know, if you don't care about this, whatever. But he said, there's there's angelic war going on uh, while Antiochus is, is seizing um, the city. Right, you read other passages. The heavenly army or the stars often refers to um, angels. Is Keith in here? Keith thinks all the stars are angels. Go outside. Uh, they're all... Right. But 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 the, the point is that earthly conflict is, is like mirrored in the heavens. Right. So uh, Joshua chapter five, um, Israel is about to, uh, you know, march around Jericho and play their music and stuff. Right. They're about to go to war with Jericho, who shows up in Joshua five, the commander of the Lord's army. Right. This angelic divine figure shows up the night before battle because like he's about to go to battle Two, okay, cool. There's powers clashing here. Second, Antiochus rages against God's people. Okay, like like this is the, the horrific thing here. Because again, sometimes heavenly hosts or stars can refer to the saints of Israel, right? The Lord, uh, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, telling Abraham, Abraham, look at your descendants. And to, what does he do? Look at the stars, right? Okay, so same kind of deal. Daniel 12, they're, they're just flat out called stars. Daniel 12:3. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, like the stars forever and ever. So, you know, whether it's angels, whether it's people, it doesn't really matter. Antiochus is attacking both, right? He's doing, he's doing war, war in the heavens, war on the people. And so look at how he comes against Israel. And like, I know this is history, but I want you to like, like especially moms with little kids, like this is pure evil. This is demonic wickedness coming against God's people. So 1 Maccabees 30 says that deceitfully he spoke. Robin, you won't find it in your Bible. Maccabees, not in there. (laughs) I appreciate the effort though. First Maccabees uh, one thirty says, Deceitfully he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him. right Daniel 8.11, he's skilled in intrigue, he's cunning in influence. But he suddenly fell upon the city and dealt it a severe blow and destroyed many of the people of Israel. He plundered the city, he burned it with fire, he tore down its houses and its surrounding walls, and they took captive the women and children and seized the livestock. Verse 38, the residents of Jerusalem fled. Her sanctuary became desolate like a desert. Her feasts were turned into mourning. Her Sabbaths into a reproach. Her honor into contempt. Her dishonor grew as great as her glory. And her exaltation was turned into mourning. Verse 60. Then they put to death the women who had their children circumcised. And their families and those who circumcised them. And they hung the infants around their mother's necks. Like, this is a demonic assault on the people of God, okay? On righteous Jews living in the land, aiming to follow the Lord with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they're being slaughtered. They're being held captive. They're being dispersed throughout the known world for their devotion to their God. Like, this is evil, this is wrong. Like, this, this is is so not only is he raging against angels and raging against God's people, uh, the, the, the biggest thing here is he's raging against God. He's setting himself up against the Lord. So verse 11 says that Antiochus revoked the regular sacrifice. Who's, whose is the sacrifice? Who's it for? For the Lord, right? Like he, this is his, his instructions. It overthrew the place of God's sanctuary. Whose house is the sanctuary? The Lord's right. This is my house. I will dwell here. This is the place of my feet. And Antiochus is desecrating it. He ravaged the temple. Verse 12, the horn threw truth, God's law, he threw it to the ground. First Maccabees tells us this, that he arrogantly 121, he arrogantly entered the sanctuary it says so he took all the stuff, right, the, the, the pots, everything, took all the stuff plus the treasure, that is the Lord's, verse 24, and then taking all of it, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and he spoke with great arrogance. Okay, I know it's been like 20 years, but 20 years ago we were in Daniel chapter 1, okay, and in Daniel chapter 1, what, what's going on there? Nebuchadnezzar has invaded Israel, he's come into the temple, he's stolen all the stuff, and he's brought it back to his own land, right? Daniel's seen this before, and now he's seeing it happen again. And and Antiochus, far worse than what Nebuchadnezzar did, Antiochus is defiling God's sanctuary and God's law, right? Nebuchadnezzar just messed it up and took the stuff and then defiled it at his own temple. Antiochus is defiling it in the actual... um, Temple, 1 Maccabees 37 says, On every side of the sanctuary they shed innocent blood, which is, you read through the law, is a big no-no. Like the biggest no-no. You do not shed innocent blood. And they even defiled the sanctuary. Verse 54. They erected a desecrating sacrilege on the altar. An abomination of desolation. So what happens is Antiochus comes into the temple. They slaughter the people. They shed innocent blood. And then they set up a statue to Zeus. Right? In Yahweh's temple, a statue to Zeus is set up. This is very bad. Okay, you do not do this. And then, uh, on top of this, to show Antiochus' arrogance, they cut off the head of the statue to Zeus, and they put a bust of Antiochus' face on there. So now, in Yahweh's temple, we're worshipping a statue uh, uh, devoted to Antiochus. Then they take a pig, they sacrifice it on the altar, they cook up the blood and the juices, and they start to paint the sanctuary with the blood of a pig. Like, this is... This is very bad. It's very bad. This this, this is uh Let me keep reading. Verse 56. Then the books of the law that they found, the scroll that they found, they tore to pieces and they burned with fire. They threw truth to the ground. 2 Maccabees 6 documents this again. Harsh and utterly grievous was this onslaught of evil. For the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred... Like in the temple... They're doing this, and besides this, they brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. The altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the laws of God. So this wicked little horn of Daniel 8 comes against God's angels, God's people, and against God, right? This is this is Antiochus-like saying, I'm the captain now, right? You, you, Yahweh, you've been brought low, your temple's been brought low, this is my city, these are my people, this is my temple, they will worship me and not you. Like, this is, this is arrogance and wickedness at its height, okay? Next, like the little horn of Daniel 7, the little horn of Daniel 8 will be successful, okay? Now, and not just in his military campaign, right? If you remember back to the, the fourth beast in Daniel 4, he smashes and conquers and triumphs over everything, The little horn of Daniel 8 does the same thing, but he's also successful in turning the hearts of the people away from the Lord, which is another big no-no in the Torah. Yeah, you don't do that. This is very bad. So 1 Maccabees 141, the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should give up their particular customs, right? So this Greek king writes to all of his kingdoms, you Jews, don't do the things that the Lord has told you to do. And what happened says that many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And he added in his letter, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. Okay? So a wicked Gentile persecutor comes, tells the people not to follow God's law, but to follow his. And some did. Okay? Some did. They they didn't stand firm. They didn't remain faithful in the face of evil. They they turned. They they bowed the knee. Okay? Antiochus was successful. He had it, he had a a charge, he took it, he was successful. And just a a little I know it's getting heavy in here, so let me tell a joke. Um Ver, you know, it says Antiochus, well, he will be successful in whatever he does. So you know those uh, calen- uh, verse of the day calendars, you've seen those, right? January 1, John 3.16, January 2, John 3.17, you know. So I have a friend who went into uh, an office, and they had one of those verse of the day calendars. And uh, June 24th, he will be successful in whatever he does, Daniel 8. <laughs> and my friend said he was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> Yeah. 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 The little horn will be successful in whatever he does. Read your Bible in context, guys. That's that's the point of that story. Okay? So I going through this, I, I want you to see, or hopefully you've seen, the the similarities between the fourth Horn, the fourth beast of Daniel 7, and the third beast of, of Daniel 8, right? They're doing just a lot of the same things. The, the pattern is the same. They're different characters, but they're on the same mission. They're arrogant. They they rage against God. They turn people away from God's law, and they bring destruction. Right? Like that's Daniel's. Like I just saw this. Why are you showing me this again? It's it's the same pattern. And so while they are absolutely similar to each other in, in what they're doing, how they're acting, I also want you to see uh, who they are—the complete opposite of. Okay, like who are they acting in, in total um, difference to? Is the Messiah of Israel right? These these two characters, these wicked, bad, demonically empowered dudes, are the total opposite of Israel's Messiah. The Messiah is God's agent to redeem Israel, right? These little horns show up and they destroy Israel. The Messiah is God's agent to reestablish, I don't actually have a chart here, I think. The Messiah is God's agent to reestablish the Davidic throne, right? He's going to build up the throne of God. The little horn tears it down or they seat themselves there. The Messiah is God's agent to turn Israel back to God's law, right? When Jesus shows up, he's preaching, he's guys, guys, here's how we're going to obey the law. Here's how we're going to be faithful to God. The little horn forces them to abandon God's law. The Messiah is God's agent to usher in the kingdom, usher in this utopian era on the earth from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The little horn comes in and brings death and destruction, right? He's the opposite of the Messiah. And so, historically, this is why these little horns in, in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and other characters later in history take on the moniker Antichrist, right? Antichrist is not used in Daniel. It's not used in Revelation. It's not used in Thessalonians. That word, it doesn't come up. But the reason that people call them that and have since the first century onward is because these little horns do the opposite of what the Christ will do, right? The opposite of what the Messiah will do. Does that make sense? So when we're reading the exploits of the fourth beast, and we're reading the exploits of the third beast, and then we think about Jesus, we should think the opposite of, right? He will do totally opposite to what these have done, okay? So if you're Daniel, um, you're terrified again. Like, the whole, like from 7 through 12, Daniel is just wetting the bed the whole time. Because okay? you're, you're, you're seeing that like, history is playing out for you. You're seeing what's going to come on your people. And you're going, this is what the future looks like? Like, like, like Jerusalem being invaded again, like in my teen years? We're going to have to endure this again? The temple being desecrated again, like in my teen years? Uh, the, the people compromising again? Not remaining faithful to the Lord. And Daniel's like, we've done this over and over and over and over. And you're, Daniel then takes up the cry of the prophets over and over and over. And he says, how long? How long? Like, how long is this going to go on? And the answer is not forever. Okay? Not, not forever. Evil has a limit. Okay? Like uh, junior high kids are doing... Uh, uh, creation on on Wednesday nights, and the Lord's just consistently saying, "Land, you have a limit. Sea, you have a limit. You go this far and no further." Well, the same for evil. So, for, verse thirteen, Daniel's asking, you know, "How how long?" I heard a holy one speaking, and another one, hold, another holy one, said to the speaker, "How long will the events of the vision last?" And so, what are the events of the vision? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled, right? Bad things. How long are these bad things? How long is this horror going to go on? Well, Gabriel tells him. Uh, Verse 14. He said to me for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary that was destroyed will be restored, right? Right? So not forever. It's not going to go on forever for this amount of time. Verse 17, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. The end of these things happening at the conclusion of the time of wrath because it refers to the appointed time of the end. So essentially the angel comes to Daniel who's freaking out because he lived through this. Now he's seeing it happen again. The angel comes to Daniel, don't lose heart. Man, like like don't give up the wrath of the little horn on God's people and God's disciplines on those who followed after him will only last 2,300 evenings and mornings. After that, the sanctuary will be restored and Jerusalem will find rest for her enemies, right? Like he's telling him, Daniel, there's a finish line to the wickedness that's coming. It's not going to go on forever. So what happened? Well, the altar was desecrated the sacrifices were taken away, and in just over three years, 1,150 days, you kids' math notebooks. Stoney's kids came in this morning with notebooks, and they're not drawing, they're doing math problems. They're total nerds. <laughs> 2,300 divided by two, evening and morning, 1,150 days. Three, three-ish 3 Years after the altar to Zeus was set up in the temple, Judah, the hammer, Maccabees, cleansed. They came in with their rebels. They cleansed and rededicated the temple on December 14th, 164 BC. To the day that the angel told Daniel it would stop. Okay? And this is where Hanukkah comes from. Right? Light the candles. Spin the dreidel. Eat your latkes. Why? Because the, the temple was restored, the altar was was restored. The the the, the Greeks were were driven out. So First Maccabees four fifty five says when this happened, right when they when they they came in and and, and Antiochus and his, his you know scourge were driven out. It says all the people fell on their faces and they worshipped and they blessed heaven. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days. They offered a sacrifice of well being and a thanksgiving which they had to clean a lot. Right, the temple so defiled by everything. It took them a long time to clean, but once the temple was set back up, how the Lord had instructed them, they they gave offerings to God. Verse 58, there was great joy among the people and the disgrace brought by the Gentiles was removed. Okay? So this is the purpose of prophecy. Like, this is why God gives it. It's to show Daniel that, yes, things are going to get very, 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 very bad. Only for a little bit, okay? Only for a short time. Evil's not going to go on unchecked forever, Daniel. So hold fast. The people who are reading Daniel later, you guys hold fast, don't give in, and remain faithful, right? Well, what's Master Samwise say? In the end, it's just a passing thing, this shadow. The sun will shine, and when it shines, it's going to shine out the clear. So that's what's coming, right? Daniel, Daniel how long is this going to go on? And the angel says just 2,300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary will be restored. And then, finally, the last similarity between Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 is that this wicked little horn of Daniel 8 will meet his end just like the little horn of the fourth beast in Daniel 7. Verses 8 25 says that he will stand against the prince of princes, yet he will be broken, not by human hands. So you remember Isaiah 14, that wicked uh, king of Babylon? Okay, Isaiah 14, 13, you said to yourself, I'll ascend to the heavens. I'll make myself like the most high. You want to know how he met his end? Verse 11 of Isaiah 14, your splendor has been brought down to shale and maggots spread out under you and worms cover you. I'm going to set my throne in the heavens and the Lord's like, you're going to be eaten by maggots. Okay. You don't exalt yourself against the God of heaven and come out uh, well on the other end. So you want to know how Antiochus met his end? Second Maccabees 9 says that the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. Thus he who only a little while beforehand had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and could imagine that he could weigh the high mountains in the balance was brought down to the earth, making the power of God manifest to all. Because who can command the waves of the sea? Only Yahweh. Who can weigh the mountains in his hand? Only Yahweh. And this guy thought, I could. Well, like that. He's done. Verse 9, And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with, war- with, swarmed with worms. The man who had a little while before thought that he could touch the stars of heaven. He will stand against the Prince of Princes, yet he will be broken, not by human hands. Okay? And so um, to close, I, I like my goal in Daniel 8 is not to give a history lesson, though I think it's history's cool. The goal of, of working through all of all of Daniel, all, all the prophetic literature. The goal is to show us how to hold our resolve in the midst of these things when they come for us. OK, like that. That's the goal. How are the saints to respond? Should wicked tyrants call us to abandon the Lord? Right. Should another Antiochus, another little horn rise up? How are we to to deal with that? Well, Maccabees tells us, OK, it says many in Israel. Verse 62, many in Israel stood firm and they chose to die rather than be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant and they did die but they didn't bow okay they, did, they didn't give in why though why why do did, why did they respond and why do the saints after them why do the apostles why do they respond in the way that they did why do they not bow the knee to this anti messiah the answer is eschatology the answer to not bowing is the resurrection of the dead. It's belief in the gospel that will keep you from not bowing your knee and profaning God's law should it be asked of you, okay? So I'm gonna read one more thing from Maccabees and I, I hope, I hope you are ready to run through a wall after, after reading it, okay? Seven sons stand firm in the face of Antiochus because they believe in the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead drives them to not bow to this little horn. So 2 Maccabees um, 7, it says, It happened also that seven brothers and their mother were arrested and were being compelled by the king under torture with whips and thongs to partake uh, in the unlawful swine's flesh. And one of them, acting as their spokesman, said to the king, We're ready to die rather than transgress the laws. And the king fell into a rage and gave orders to have pans and the cauldrons heated and that the tongue of this spokesman be cut out, that they scalp him and cut off his hands and feet to take him to the fire, still breathing, and fry him in a pan. The smoke from the pan spread widely, but the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly. Okay, belief in the resurrection of the dead makes you not a coward. Okay, cowards will not inherit the kingdom of God, which means you have to put your trust in the resurrection of the dead. They're encouraging each other. We're going to die nobly, saying the Lord God is watching over us and in truth has had compassion on us, as Moses declared in his song. So the first brother dies. So they bring out the second brother. And verse seven, they tore off the skin of his head with the hair. And they asked him, "Will you rather eat this swine rather than have your body punished limb by limb? And he said to them, no. And when he, he was at his last breath, he said <laughs> to Antiochus Epiphanes, to God manifest. He says, you accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life. But the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we've died for his laws. Same story with the third brother. Verse 10, he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said nobly, I got these from God and I hope to get them back again from God. Because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Antiochus and those who were with him were astonished at this young man's spirit. Because he regarded his sufferings as nothing. Why? You can have my body. I get a new one. God's faithful to raise the dead who don't bow the knee to wicked. The fourth son. Verse 14. It was near, he was near death. And he said, one cannot but choose to die at the hands of mortals. And cherish the hope God gives of being raised by him again. Fifth son, same thing. Sixth son, same thing. The mother was especially admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Maybe we should read Second Macbeth 7 on Mother's Day. Like give them a card with this. They chopped off their scalp and tongue and hands. Here, Mom. The mother was admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Although she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, she bore it with good courage. Why? Because of her hope in the Lord. Hope in the God who raises the dead. Okay, you wicked, you took my sons, I'll get them back again. She encouraged each of them. So, the mom going, doing her mom thing. She encouraged each of them and said, The Creator of the world will, in his mercy, give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws. Brody, would you come this, please? And then finally, the seventh son. Antiochus promised him with oaths that he would make him rich and enviable if he would turn away from the ways of his ancestors, right? I've tried the torture thing. That's not working. They're all telling me something about the resurrection of the dead. Let me try the richest thing with this one. But leaning close, his mother comes and spoke to him as follows. And she says, and this is a boss mom. She says, don't fear the butcher. But prove worthy of your brother's. Accept death, so that in God's mercy, I may get you back again along with your brothers. And while she was speaking to him, the young man said, (laughs) What are you waiting for? I will not obey the king's command, but I obey the command of the law that was given to our ancestors through Moses. I, like my brothers, give up body and life for the laws of our ancestors. Then the king fell into a rage and handled him worse than the others, being exasperated at his scorn. So he died in his integrity, putting his whole trust in the Lord. If anyone would follow after me, Jesus says, must hate his life. If anyone would follow after me, he must carry a cross and die. This is, I read from Maccabees just because Antiochus is but this is the testimony of the saints, guys. We put our trust in a crucified Lord. And so we go to crucifixion too. If that's what's what what called of us. We go to crucifixion. But we do that not just because we're sadists or we like violence or whatever. We do that because he's not just a crucified Lord. He's a crucified and risen Lord. And if we follow him, Romans 6, in death, we will also follow him in life. And so that's what you have to have to stand in the face of wickedness and not bow your knee. You have to have the resurrection of the dead front and center. Because the people who bowed, the people who turned, the people who followed after Antiochus and and all the rest throughout history, they lost sight of of the end. They lost sight of what comes for those who are faithful unto death. And so that's what I want to encourage you guys with as you read through Daniel 8. Like, man, that all looks bad. It's just for a little while. He will be broken, not by human hands. And we're still running at Daniel 12, okay? Those who trust in him will, will be raised to life, shine like the stars in the kingdom of their father. Let's pray. Thank you. Um, thank you for showing Daniel the future. Though um, this part's in, in our past, God, we, we draw encouragement from it. Um, So thank you for Daniel's faithfulness to to write these things, and thank you for the faithfulness of um, the saints to to preserve these things for us. God, thank you for the testimony of the Maccabees, who loved not their lives unto death, but overcame um, by the word of their testimony, by their trust in you. And I ask God that you would send the Holy Spirit to us uh, in a real way to make us bold, God, to fill us with courage um, and to uh, uh, drive out any cowardice in us. God, we will not be among those counted as cowards on the last day. We put our trust in the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we put our trust in the resurrection, the guarantee of our resurrection. So if they come and take our tongue and take our scalp and take our hands, we say, I know God gave these to me. And I know he'll give them back to me. Do, what, do your worst. In the name of Jesus, everyone said, Amen.